0: February twenty-eighth, 1972, at the invitation of Premier Chou En Lai, President Richard Nixon visits the People's Republic of China to meet with Chairman Mao Zedong, with the hopes of improving relations between the United States and China. In a joint statement known as the Shanghai Communique, China declares, "quote All nations, big or small, should be equal. Big nations should not bully the small." And strong nations should not bully the weak. China will never be a superpower, and it opposes hegemony and power politics of any kind, unquote. Nearly 50 years later, China seems to have fallen short of that stated goal. Not only is it one of the world's economic superpowers, but it now stands to rival the United States in terms of R&D spending, much to the consternation of U.S. leaders, including President Joe Biden. China has managed to increase its R&D spending – By double-digit percentages, two years in a row, and while they may have fallen short of their goal of investing 2.5% of their GDP, investment in basic research reached 6% of their total R&D spending after hovering at 5% for over a decade. In 2018, China spent $468 billion, second only to the United States' $582 billion. But if China continues to accelerate their spending at this rate, one thing is clear— the U.S. will not be number one for long. To help us discuss the rise of China as an R&D global superpower, we'd like to welcome Rob Atkinson of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. To lead our discussion, however, I'm going to hand things off to Director of R&D Tax Incentives here at Cross Border Solutions, Rahim Walji. Rahim, you have the floor.
1: Thanks, Matthew. And Rob, welcome back, sir. Really a pleasure to speak with you again. Hey, it's my pleasure. Glad to be back. Rob, for the benefit of our audience members who may not have gotten a chance to listen to the last podcast we did together, could you give us a little bit about your background again, as well as some context about the ITIF as well? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I've been
2: involved in technology policy in D.C. for quite a long time. I was at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. I was at the former Congressional Office of Technology Assessment. And then in 2006, I launched ITIF, the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, to be a think tank that looks at and focuses on a whole wide array of issues around technological innovation and how governments, particularly the U.S. government, can take advantage of that to maximize innovation and
1: the economic benefits that come from that. Fantastic. Thank you, sir. So let's jump into this discussion today about the U.S. and China and how there is potential for China to surpass the U.S. in terms of R&D. So from 1991 to the present, China has risen from eighth in the world in r&d spending to second in the world what has changed for china in terms of their r&d spending over the past few decades just some highlights from you i mean the first thing to recognize is
2: you can't really trust any chinese economic statistics i mean i think that's the first thing they they overstate their statistics for political reasons both internal and external one of the things that i certainly have heard when i've been over there is that a lot of the companies when they report their company r&d data to china particularly the soes the state-owned enterprises they'll they'll incorporate things that say a u.s company wouldn't incorporate as r d just so that they look good in beijing among the party so you know it's not clear exactly how close china is to us in r d but i i think it's unobjectionable that there have grown dramatically in terms of their r d and that's come both from the corporate side the business side and the government side one way the corporate side has grown is that there's been a lot more foreign direct investment in R&D in China. Foreign companies are putting more R&D facilities there, partly because there's they're good Chinese engineers and scientists. They want to take advantage of them, particularly the fact that they're somewhat lower wages than the U.S. But also they're doing that oftentimes under some sort of pressure from the Chinese government. I remember, geez, I don't know, six, eight years ago, I was over in Nanjing, I think it was, and visited a Ford Motor Company R&D lab that was there simply because the government said to Ford, if you want to build cars in China and sell them, uh, you also have to put an R&D lab there. So some of it's because of that. Some of it's because China has grown a number of their own technology industries. They're growing in biopharma, for example, certainly in internet, where they made it hard for U.S. firms like Google and Facebook and others to do well. They have their own national champions. They do a lot of R&D, including AI and other IT-based R&D. And then you have a lot of companies that do uh, engineering-based R&D, like, for example, Huawei. Uh, Huawei does more R&D now than any other company in the world on a PPP or purchasing power parity basis. And then finally, the government has expanded R&D, uh, both directly at universities, although they've been slower than I think they had hoped to do that, but also at national labs and other places like that. has set its sights on being the number one R&D country in the world, and I have no doubt that at this rate, they will get there.
1: Thank you for that highlight. And I think you, you raised a good point, right? While the data itself may have some questionable aspects to it, there's no question that the spend has dramatically increased, right? I think some of the data, if, if we were to look at it, China does these these five year plans, right? So the one that just ran through twenty twenty was the thirteenth five year plan, and they just barely missed the mark of, of about two and a half percent of GDP spent on R and D, right? And so we touched on state owned enterprises, and you know this kind of has to do with my next question. So this exponential increase that we're seeing, right? I think it's a thirty five x increase from the early nineties to you know twenty eighteen or so. I think was the last data point that was out there comparing those two periods. The OECD says that there's you know, four sources for R&D funding, business, government, foreign funding, and other national level sources, right? So I think you touched on a, a couple of foreign aspects and, as well as the state-owned aspect. Help us understand you know, why this exponential increase has happened and how it relates to some of the, you know, these four categories of, of investment. Is it just the foreign side and the state-owned side that's really the increase? What are those sort of big factors?
2: Yeah. And so I think, again, it's certainly exponential when you go all the way back to 92, because the base was was so, so low. But it's a little bit more like when you're getting to the top of that curve, it's slowing down growth is slowing down, but it's still faster than our it looks as if it's faster than our growth. One of the points you made there was non-national or sub-national governments. And there is where China, I think, really has an advantage we have 50 states in the u.s and, and they all have some level of what's called technology-based economic development programs so they try to encourage these kinds of activities but at the same time many many states and, and certainly overall states have been cutting university r d spending at public universities so we've been not only cutting r d at the federal level in the u.s as a shared gdp we've been cutting it in absolute terms at the state level china's the exact opposite China states aren't like our states. You know, our states, I'm reading a biography of Madison, fascinating biography. And I thought I knew a lot about that revolution. And I learned even more, which was just how the country was. I mean, these states were like many countries and they're still treated that way in some regard. China, that's not at all what's going on. The the, the provinces in China They're run by Communist Party officials who look at that as a stepping stone to get back to Beijing. And so they follow very, very closely the guidelines and dictates of Beijing, whether it's the National Resources Development Commission or MIIT or most Ministry of Office of Science and Technology. And what the national government is telling them is you have to be investing in these made-in-China 2025 industries or these new five-year plan industries. And the more you invest at the provincial level, particularly in R&D and subsidies for R&D and venture capital, the greater your rewards will be. So they have aligned their, I can't remember how many provinces they have, I don't know, 20-something or other. They've aligned their interest with the national goals. And that's one of the reasons why R&D has gone up. It's not just the Beijing pushing this and funding it, but it's the provinces as well.
1: So this sort of, I don't want to call it uniformity of thought, although that may be one way to say, but this sort of uniform focus and effort and the conformity of the different provinces to sort of the national objectives and mandates seems to be a big factor in, in how they're able to redistribute a lot of the funds back into this, this realm of R&D, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Imagine the U.S. government, imagine the United States with, you know, given right now that the Democrats control three, you know, they control the Senate the House and the White House. Imagine that every single state legislature was democratically controlled and every governor was democratically controlled. And if a governor wanted any sort of advancement up to a cabinet position or whatever, he or she would have to go along with what President Biden wants. That's China. I'm not saying it's totally lockstep, but you you do pay attention and you you try to align. The other factor that's going on, though, is not just that they're doing more. If you look at R&D intensity across countries, one of the big drivers of that is what economists would call sectoral or industrial mix. So if you have a lot of sectors, if you have a big share, bigger share of your economy in high R&D sectors like For example, semiconductors, aerospace or uh, biopharma, you're going to do a lot of R&D, even if maybe your firms in that sector aren't leading edge in the world. Just because, for example, in biopharma, average so 20 percent or so of of, of revenue goes to R&D. Same with semis. So what's happened in China is that they've shifted their economy more towards those highly R&D intensive sectors than, than was certainly the case 10 or t- certainly 20 years ago. And so because of that, they're building semiconductor firms, biotech firms, obviously Huawei and, and, and telecom, AI and, and Google, or like Baidu and those firms. So their sectoral mix has shifted to be much more R&D intensive industries. And that's another reason why you see a big R&D increase in China.
1: No, that's a really great point, right? Because if you were to look at the data, you know, government funding in China has gone down. There's more government contributions in countries like Mexico and Russia compared to where China is at right now. But to your point, right, they have diversified and focused intensely on industries that require more R&D just by nature of the business. So that's a really, really great point.
2: The US, I think, has gone too far over on onto on that side, where it's maybe 30% of government, the rest is, is, is private. I think that's too far, I think we should be 60-40 with 40% government. But when you're a country that has too much government, like Mexico or Russia, what that really means is you've got too little private. And so your ratio is out of whack. The Chinese don't really have that problem. They have enough of a vibrant industry sector. However, one component of that, though, is I believe that some of that is hidden. So you'll have some hidden subsidies to some of the SOEs, for example, for R&D that probably get recorded as private sector R&D. But they're really pass-throughs by the government to these SOEs. The equivalent would be in the U.S. where we we would have government funded, but private sector performed R&D. We in the U.S. count that as government R&D. It might be that, you know, Boeing or Lockheed or somebody's performing it. In China, my guess is they they count that as private sector R&D, even though it's government
0: pass-through. Software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate hyper localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions, transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai. TP. That's xbs.ai slash TP.
1: So let's dive a little deeper and talk about the incentives that are available from an R&D perspective in, in China, right? So how does claiming R&D benefits in China differ from the US? What kinds of incentives or credits or deductions are, are offered there just at a high level?
2: Yeah, so there was a report that ITIF recently uh, commissioned by a colleague of ours, Jacek Wardwa. And Jacek is probably the leading person in the world, analyst in the world, to really focus on uh, tax incentives for innovation. And what he found in that report uh, was that China's R&D tax incentives were 2.7 times more generous than the United States. So this was a report from September 8th, enhanced tax incentives for R&D would make Americans richer by, by JSEC and then also his calling John Lester. So what that means is if you're a company in China and you're investing in R&D, and then you file your taxes at the end of the fiscal year calendar year, you're gonna get a tax break or a tax rebate from the government that's 2.7 times bigger than what you'll get here in the US. Now you can say, well, does that really matter? pretty much every academic study that's looked at the R&D credit has found that at minimum, a dollar of credit, it produces at least a dollar of corporate R&D. And it's more likely a dollar 30, a dollar 40. So you're talking a pretty significant, the US effective credit is something around sort of six or 7%. So now we're talking here, we're talking almost 17% or something like that, 16%. So that'll get you a bunch of R&D. That'll get you, a, you know, 10% more private sector R&D than what you would get here in the
1: U.S. So that's, that's that's one big factor. Oh, great point. And in terms of the mechanics, right? So I think there are industry focuses. So, you know, telecommunications are highly prioritized, mining, construction, food, and beverage. They also have a variety of different benefits, right? So they have reduced corporate income tax rates. They have super deductions. They have tax concessions, you know, They have VAT exemptions, you know, for R&D equipment. So it seems like, you know, to your point, this 2.7x makes sense because they're offering so many different options by which to get it. Number one and number two, to your point earlier, they're directing it and really highly prioritizing, you know, high new technology enterprises and things that are in those industries, as you mentioned, that require a larger investment of R&D just by their nature.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the 2.7x doesn't include all of those other things. It doesn't include the VAT exemption. It doesn't include other kinds of incentives there. So when you throw those in, obviously, you're talking something that's even bigger. The other thing that they do is they provide a system of grants. So we wrote a there was a very good Harvard study on this a few about a year ago, I think, and it looked at how much companies in China are subsidized in terms of their R&D. And I have to go back and look at it, but it was something along the lines of a Chinese company, the average Chinese company gets about 22% of its R&D directly paid for by the Chinese government. Whereas in the US, that number is more like 6%. So on top of the credit, which I've already mentioned, much, you know, 2.7 better. You've got direct grants to to companies, significantly better, almost three times better than in the US. And then you have these other programs, as you mentioned the VAT, and the other thing about these grants is most of the grants in the u s for r and d to companies are really around defense so they 're like, could you build a faster, better missile, do the r and d on that they 're not really broadly aligned with commercial interest or commercial competitiveness interests that 's not the case in China. You know a typical American company who's competing against a Chinese company in a, any commercial sector. They're competing against a company that's getting a much better R&D credit and is getting direct grants from the government to support their R&D. You know the other thing on top of that you have to remember is is a lot of these different funds like for example the semiconductor fund the central government has set up as well as the provincial governments they just give they give huge grants you know billions of dollar grants to these semiconductor firms and that also supports r&d but it doesn't get counted in this other pot so you have you just sort of have kind of direct grants hey go build something but you can build your r&d lab
1: and you can hire some people with it as well sure and then on top of that you have the state owned enterprises going to government controlled banks that give easy loans for funding the r&d right so there's sort of the wheel is prepped for that type of resources to continue to get injected into the businesses right
2: yeah absolutely you've got zero interest loans. Sometimes the loans are forgiven. Yeah, that's really, as you just said, the right way to think about this is the entire system is aligned towards helping companies do more R&D. You know, that's really one of the things I think that's so important to understand about China that that a lot of folks in the US, particularly sort of more, I don't know, free market types just don't understand as they say, well, you know, state-directed or state-planned economies don't work. Uh, yeah, when you're talking about the Soviet Union, they don't work. But what China does is different than that. They're letting these companies have a lot of autonomy. These companies are investing in where they want to invest. Well, you know, within limits, you got to invest in semiconductor. But within that, you've got a lot of choice. So you're sort of a market-based company. And then what the government is doing is saying, if you're investing in the directions we want to go, we're going to give you low interest or free loans. We're going to give you grants. We're going to give you a great tax credit. We're going to exempt... Your R and D purchases from that, just you know, the whole nine yards. They'll do anything they can to pave the way or smooth the way for these companies to be
1: able to be more innovative. Right. You know, the government's just set up that way, as well as the way that the different policies are not only drafted and created, but also enforced. Right. And you know, that being said, I think in the U S. we can agree there's bipartisan interest in the U S. boosting R and D and and competing with other global economies and how they're focusing on R&D, right? So it's it's hopefully going to be a priority of, of both parties and hopefully some major policy changes coming up here in the congressional proposals that we're seeing come out related to r and D. I
2: I agree with that to some extent, but what I worry about, frankly, is that we're, you know, the the, the Chinese are like, not, not to use a pun, but, you know, on a Chinese menu at a restaurant, they're all in from column A and column B, <laughs> you know, depending on what parties in power the U.S., we're, we're either on column A or column B. So Mm -hmm. For example, Republicans generally, and on a a generalization, but they support R&D tax incentives, but they've been, for many of them, a little bit more hesitant to expand funding for R&D. Democrats are just the opposite. If you look at President Biden's budget, which I encourage you to do, it's very, very troubling. So he has in his budget that just came out, I think, on Friday, he has a, a list of all what are called tax expenditures and what tax expenditures are obviously are any sort of deduction or credit that would lower your taxes they call that an expenditure because you were getting fewer tax incentives so when you look at the biden budget r d tax expenditures rank dead last in terms of cost so you know a big tax expenditure would be like the mortgage interest deduction huge expenditure we're passing up a lot of money. In the Biden proposed budget, R&D expenditures rank dead last. They go from tax expenditures of $38 billion in 2020 to $149 billion negative. So unless we change the tax law from 2018, which made it so that you can no longer expense R&D expenditures, you had to deduct them or amortize them. If we don't change that, that's going to take us from 24th of 32 OECD countries down to 32nd and cost an enormous amount of money.
1: Right. And I think to your point, that amortization piece that came in with the TCJA and it's going to sunset here soon is definitely a huge factor that I think, you know, not only have we talked about on multiple podcasts before, but, you know, you're seeing a lot of businesses start to talk about it as well.
2: Yeah, I actually have a new op-ed in The Hill, which is a newspaper for people who follow Congress. I have a new op-ed that came out on Friday that goes into a lot of detail on that and just what's what's at stake if we let that change happen in the deduction. It's a big, big factor. And what I find so troubling about that is not everybody, but many, many people now are talking, as they rightly should, about the challenge from China technologically, as you're talking about on your show. You know, to respond to that, we've got to do something similar to China uh, in the sense of we've got to have a better R&D credit. We've got to have more R&D funding. We should have a better STEM workforce. Uh, a lot of things we've got to do. And if we're going to do only one of them and cut the other, we're just, it's just not going to work. It'll just accelerate our fall behind China, which we don't want to have
0: happen. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show cross border solutions weekly transfer pricing podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it.
1: We've kind of hit on a couple of small points here and there, but let's kind of hit it head on. So what is the U.S. doing to keep our position or are we doing enough to keep our position? And then what are some measures that we're not doing right now that could be effective? So let's kind of wrap all that up together because we've kind of been touching on it in different areas.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people, you know, they criticize Congress for this and that. and, And certainly Congress has become more polarized and all. But. You know, one of the things about Congress is you know, they, they take their time, and, and, and that's a good thing. You don't want them to be rushing through important legislation in a week unless it's a crisis. So this new effort in the Senate in particular that Senator Schumer, the Senate leader, and Todd Young, Senator Young from Indiana, Republican, have put together, which was the Endless Frontier Act, and then that got merged in with a bunch of different China legislation and the CHIPS Act and a bunch of other things to this new omnibus bill called the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. You know, that's that does a pretty good job. Two years ago, if I had seen that, I would have been thrilled. We need to double both the regular credit and the, and the alternative simplified credit easily. If we double those, we get to about midway in the pack of the OECD. we don't to get near the top if we double the credit. That's how far other countries are ahead of us. So we've got to do things like that. We've got to have uh, much more industry university cooperation programs, and we've got to have more incentives for companies to reassure, particularly advanced production like
1: semiconductor fabs. Great, great point. Thank you very much for kind of summarizing all of that together for us. You know, we, we were kind of touching on it, but it's nice to, to put it forward in a very clear summary. So if we focus back to China now, let's compare that to, we touched a little earlier, the Made in China 2025. Let's now compare, you know, some of the pros and or gaps of the U.S. process to what China's focus is on with Made in China 2025. Can you talk a little bit more about that plan and how it's specifically going to raise or increase government contributions for R&D?
2: One of the fallacies in the U.S. is this notion, well, you know, government's too stupid to figure out what technologies are important in the future. You know, they, quote, can't pick winners. And like, yeah, I guess I wonder where the Internet came from or uh, GPS or graphical user interface or semiconductors or, you know, you name it. Many of the key technologies we enjoy today came about because the government supported them in an early stage. I think it's nonsensical to say the government can't identify if you look at every every single technology policy plan in the world by government, they all more or less say the same things they're you know clean energy storage batteries semiconductors quantum computing a i robotics you know, you know just biotech everybody knows what these areas are the role of government isn't to pick individual firms or even narrow technologies but to support these broad technology ecosystems that's what china's doing although they're made in china 2025 and their new five year plan is much more detailed than that it's not just eight industries it's it's eight broad industries and so then within those there's there are sub plans and sub plans what they're trying to do is they've identified Pretty much every single advanced technology sector, you know, even very, very narrowly down to things like industrial lasers, and medical devices, you know, all that. And they've set up plans to support companies that are doing work in that area. Now, is the Chinese system efficient? No, it is not efficient. It is incredibly inefficient. But, If you don't care about efficiency, it's kind of like, you know, going out and spending and you you got a credit card that's kind of with no credit limit and you go out and you buy a bunch of stuff and half the stuff you buy breaks. Yeah, you still got a bunch of stuff that works. That's how we should think about the Chinese government in this space. They waste a lot of money, but they have a lot of money, so they don't mind wasting it.
1: Right. They're sort of putting a lot of money in a lot of different places. And even if some are successful, it's not going to be a true waste. Right. Yeah, exactly,
2: exactly. Even if they lose money, for them, it's not about money. This is the other thing that we have to really disabuse ourselves of. For them, it's not about efficient markets. It's not even frankly about GDP growth for them. They would like GDP growth. As I argued in a recent article in the Journal of International Economy, this is about power for the Chinese. This is power that they want. And they see the route to global power as through an advanced technology economy. They don't wanna be dependent upon anybody else. And they want to make other people be dependent upon them. And of course, they want the power that relates to the dual use technologies for their military. So this is about power. They're willing to spend, I don't know, certainly not unlimited amounts, but for us, they seem like unlimited amounts to get those capabilities.
1: Sure. So I want to start kind of drawing to a here with opinion questions, you know, to kind of get your thoughts on things. So you mentioned the semiconductor sector earlier, you know, and how... China has you know, subcategorized these different industries so specifically, and there's been some talk recently that there's this R&D race between the U.S. and China that seems like it's going to focus on semiconductors at the end of the day, and, and there's some reference to Taiwan getting caught in the middle of all of this, but can you share your perspective on this particular aspect of the battle for, as you were kind of alluding to, global leadership and, and how semiconductors might play into that?
2: There's two issues. There's global leadership at the leading edge, which is, I don't know what that is now, three nanometers. Maybe it's going down even smaller. So, you know, nanometers, like, I don't know, a millionth of the size of a hair. I mean, it's super, super small. So the view that we have to have leadership in that we can't be sort of back of the pack or middle of the pack. And right now, frankly, we're not at the lead. TSMC is at the lead and Dintel is somewhat behind. But then there's the second issue, which is just do we have enough capability? In fact, if you look at the chip shortage today for cars and appliances and things like that, it's not at the cutting edge chips that you would see in your phone or your supercomputer. They're, they're really much older kind of chips in a way, maybe 20 nanometers, 30 nanometers. So we have to be able to do both here. And the problem right now is that we rely a lot on TSMC, which is the Taiwanese champion and, the, and TSMC innovated what's called the foundry model where you can design chips and then you go and they'll build them for you and they're, and they're incredible they're, it's an incredible company, they spend an enormous amount of money on capital equipment. The problem is it's in Taiwan, and so certainly the US military feels that we cannot be reliant upon uh, Taiwanese chips for our national security or frankly even our economic security, because if China ever decided they wanted to go into taiwan and take it over or bomb the tsmc factory we would really be in a very very tough position now we've got certainly some facilities in the u.s there's some facilities in europe there's some facilities in israel and some in japan and some in korea but taiwan is a big big player there and so that's really behind the notion of we need to have more fabrication facilities or fabs in the u.s now the good news is that both Samsung and TSMC are building fabs in the U.S., but I think the notion is we should encourage them to build more and bigger ones, and then also to get Intel and some of the other companies uh, to build, again, more and bigger ones here as well. So that's a big part of the issue, just do we have enough fabs here for our own supply chain security? And then on top of that is that our companies have to be able to continue to lead or regain the lead in some cases, because at some point, It's not gonna happen anytime soon, but at some point it's realistic that the Chinese could become front runners. Why did Korea become a front runner? Korea had no capability, they they had nothing in this space, nothing, probably what, 30 years ago, maybe, or 40 years ago, they had nothing. And so they licensed technology from US companies, they spent a boatload of money on supporting ship engineers and the like, and now they're they're global leaders. So the feeling is that if Korea could do it, China can do it too. And that would be very detrimental to our interests if China becomes the leading player and the leading innovator in semiconductors. So that's really why you've got components of a bill pushing for advanced R&D as well as as subsidies for building fabs here in the U.S.
1: Now, thanks for that explanation and and your thoughts on there. I just want to say thank you again so much for taking the time to speak with us and and share your knowledge and your expertise with us. It's uh, been my pleasure, as always. So uh, thanks for having me.
0: And just days after recording this episode on the competition between the U.S. and China over R&D, the U.S. Senate passed the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which includes $52 billion for research and development activities. The bill comes as a response to the growing concerns that the nation was falling behind one of its chief economic competitors, China. Worries, which this episode's guest, Rob Atkinson of the ITIF, expressed quite clearly. Whether or not this bill passes and what impact it has in the race for global R&D leadership, we'll have to wait for another episode. Welcome back, everyone. We'd like to thank Rob Atkinson and Rahim Walji for joining us on today's show. We'd like to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out the entire suite of Cross-Border Solutions Tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer and writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next time.